Hello and welcome to a special installment of the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast, where today we are looking at the first two-parter of Season 1, It's a Voice in the Wilderness. We are three Europeans who are too young to have seen the show when it first aired, but we are here now watching the show for the first, the second, and the upteenth time. But before we go to our main discussion, as usual, we have a little question that we will turn around. As you can see, it's it's kind of a festive, uh, festive mood here, and as we go to our big, like, feasts for the holidays, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to ask ourselves what is our weird food combination a la fish fingers with custard? Who wants to start? Well, um, maybe, well, I, I start with the snacks um, before we go to the main dish um, because, yeah, the, the weirdest thing, um, at least from the reactions um, I, or let's say we got, uh, because it's the it's a creation of my partner, is... Um, yeah, sweet popcorn with a nacho cheese sauce. And it tastes really amazing, even if I'm really, really sure a lot of people right now were, um, but so far, everyone I uh, convinced to try it um, was like, oh, gosh, this is this is good. I hate you now because I want to eat this regularly. So um, maybe if you go the next time you go see a movie or have a movie, night or something um when one goes with the sweet popcorn the other goes with nachos and uh, the cheese sauce maybe give it a try it's not really not bad quite contrary you don't want us that you try to roll people into this weird habit of yours now it's actually much more dangerous uh, how about you Leila? i have two things i think both are very difficult to say actually because um as our listeners probably have noticed English is uh, not our first language and I will have to figure out how to call things. So the first thing I've always been looked at funny for was a special kind of porridge. I cannot tell how to tell this kind of porridge that I make, but it's sweet and it's not really, it's like super firm and sweet. And then I like to put hot plums from the, from the jar on it. And I've packed it up like that and took it to work and all my coworkers were like, what the hell is that? And I really like it. The second thing is as difficult to say, actually, it's bread bun. Like, it always has to be poppy seed bread buns with a lot of butter on it. Like, really just normal butter, super thick butter, and then a layer of jam, marmalade, the, the, the strawberry stuff. But really, like, a thin layer, so it's super greasy and sweet, and it's what my grandmother always made me when I wanted a snack. Um, and that's something that all other family members found disgusting. So I think my grandmother really just trained me to like her snack that nobody else liked. Yeah. And speaking of grandmothers, that is uh, my favorite kind of oddball dish. It's Gret Danma. Uh, it's dead grandma or total Oma in German. I will have to keep this in now. Which is basically just a speciality from Eastern Germany. And just like all Eastern German food, it's the most like stereotypical what you would expect. It's just potatoes, sauerkraut, and black pudding. So a sausage made from, from blood, pig's blood usually. And it looks about as appealing as it sounds. So uh, I don't know. It, it's just something that was brought to this part of Germany by my family when, when they moved here. And so I always grew up on it and... Yeah, not, not many people around me ever understood. But okay, I, I think this set us in the right mood for, for launching into a very motivated discussion here. Um, so uh, while you try to contain yourself here, 
I will try to uh, do a first draft of the uh, synopsis. Now, though, as promised, we are going to talk about A Voice in the Wilderness Part 1 and 2 here. And before I go into the synopsis, maybe I should actually say something about putting both of these together, because this is always um, kind of a question, especially when introducing newcomers to the show. Uh, do you want to experience it exactly like people would have experienced it back in the day, having to wait for, for a little while or not? In this particular case, I feel very confident combining both of them into one part, because... I don't think A Voice in the Wilderness Part 1 really stands on its own very well or creates the kind of tension that you want for a really good cliffhanger. There are going to be big cliffhangers in the future of this show, at the ends of seasons, at the ends of other multi-part stories, but this isn't necessarily one of them. So in, in, term, in, in, in the name of keeping time, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to put both of these together. So maybe I should throw in at this point that I'm really gla glad that we do, uh, did it this way, um, because if we had like a cliffhanger for a week, I would be really dissatisfied because yeah. my reaction to the end of uh, the 18th episode was mm, really. Yeah, this is something we usually want to avoid. And then there's also just the aspect that um, how much things were designed as cliffhangers or not is then also like always wrapped up in in production questions. So it's not even always the case that the writer was like, ah, oh, this is a good decision to make the cut exactly here. So it's just a little bit awkward. Because with Babylon 5, you always have to keep in mind this is a show made for TV. So it doesn't have the luxury of modern streaming shows of having like five minutes more or less, depending on what the story wants. It needs to be the same length every time. So that's just a restriction people work around. Uh, but anyway... Uh, to, to get to the synopsis, we are talking about A Voice in the Wilderness Part 1 and 2. And uh, yeah, it once again starts with a newcomer arriving on Babylon 5. This time, it is an old friend of uh, Delens, Dral, who has come to visit, visit the station. And by the sound of it, uh, even to say goodbye a little bit, because things are changing back home. And yeah, he doesn't really recognize that old Minbar anymore. While this is going on, there's also things popping off back at home for our heroes of, of the human side of the crew because there are increasingly more vi violent outbreaks on Mars, which culminates in a massive attack where uh, the terrorist groups have taken uh, some heavier weaponry and are starting to actually fighting the what they perceive as the Earth oppression. And in all of this chaos, uh, Garibaldi has to well look for some old and look for some old flames that he had. But the main thing, the main immediate thing that keeps us busy for both of these parts is actually the planet that is right next to Babylon 5. Epsilon 3 is showcasing some seismic activity and attracting a lot of interests from all sides. I think this just about covers it. And uh, yeah, I think uh, with this double feature, it's all the more exciting to go into our first impressions. Yeah, I'm. I'm not really sure what to say. On on one hand, I it it was really interesting because it was different kind of action um, this time. Though, um, I mean that that um, draw appears there matches the matches the story again. Um, what I was a bit where I stumbled a bit was uh, the Gary Body story background story we kind of get here. Um, I'm not sure I can guess that Mars is going to be a bigger part in the future or could be, though it doesn't really feel like this at this point. 
and therefore it felt more like yeah a, a bit unnecessary um to to have this this story with with garibaldi because it's not necessarily gives his character more depth or or anything it's yeah i i don't really know what to do with this kind of information and and story you would get here so overall i i, I kind of liked the um thing with the seismic activity on the on the planet nearby i mean we've seen it sometimes and it was like okay there's this something but there's no interaction with it um though yeah there were some parts i was not satisfied with but i go to that later on okay okay so this is gonna be a, a bigger topic i'm i'm excited for that how about you Lena? um <clears throat> yes i also really enjoyed that episode i think it's one of those episodes where we get to know the potential the show has to actually become more more yeah to have more of a, of a narrative uh English, sorry. And the right of drive, maybe? Yes. So I start over. I enjoyed that episode. Um, it's an episode where you get an idea of how interesting it can get, of what kind of narrative drive there can be in that show at some later point. Although it starts slowly as everything in season one, I guess. <laughs> um, I would also, yeah... I guess what I really enjoy always is that it's like this first moment where you actually see the world a bit out of order, where you don't have just this daily life or you're not introduced in a universe that is working, but where you can see that kind of things are in motion, things that are processes going on that are super complex. And here we have um, <clears throat> a lot of dramatic events coming together, the planet, the other Earth ship, Mars, uh, the Membari society is mentioned again, so everything kind of comes together. But we don't know, really know why or how. And what I would also like to tease at at this point is, um, because we cannot talk about it yet, because world building spoiler, but I dropped a question to the community in our special discussion of uh, The Road Home. And now as I rewatched this episode, I think at some point we have to discuss this kind of world building because my theory, I think I can find reasons for that in this episode. But um, in a few months more to that, I guess. Yeah, definitely something to look forward to. But um, yeah, to, to return to this episode, I think this idea that we see a little bit of Babylon 5's narrative drive is, is, is really true. And for me, it's also Babylon 5 for the first time exploring this idea of adventures happening outside of the station. Like we, we go to this planet, we see it, we have this little adventuring section with a little obstacle course, which I find very adorable. So... Um, yeah, this is what really is the great appeal for me. It's the first time that Babylon 5 sort of changes up the formula and we get to see something different from, from the usual sets, from the usual stuff happening. Plus, it's uh, one of the first big space battles, and as a big fan of, of all things science fiction action, this is uh, a big highlight for me. Yeah, but but we'll get to that as well. So the the overarching plot is, of course, the seismic activity and such. So... Maybe we want to start with uh, Garibaldi's plot to get that out of the way, or uh, how how do you feel? Should we approach this big thing? Oh, yeah, we can start with Garibaldi, I think. Maybe Garibaldi and the whole math thing. Yeah. yeah. Because we don't have that much on that yet. I have to say that I like the Garibaldi plot, to be honest, but also maybe um, I do like that because I know what comes later. But I don't know, I feel like we see him 
we see for the second time in the show already how fragile he can be. Because, I mean, he was clearly completely taken aback by these news from Mars. And we see Sinclair offering him to talk, <clears throat> you know. And we now were already introduced into his drinking problem as well as to this messy backstory. I don't know. I feel like he got layers of fragility. The question, of course, is... <clears throat> sorry. The question, of course, is when you watch it for the first time, like Micah does, how interesting and how authentic they are at this point. That, of course, is the question here. Yeah, the the problem, I guess, for me was... It, 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 it didn't really fit in for me uh, from what we know until this point about Garibaldi, about his past, about his person... Um, it wasn't convincing that he had this kind of backstory okay. um, for me. So it was a bit like, yeah, yeah. like I already said, it, it felt unnecessary. It didn't really gave me a depth in his character because it didn't feel convincing to me. And on the, on the other hand, it's not like something really comes out of it. I mean, in the end... Spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> uh, it's he's yeah he's he tells the this this uh, I think Lisa what's what's yeah. what's her name? Um, yeah, maybe I, I have free a few free days coming um, around. Maybe I can come over to Mars and we can try. No, no, I'm uh, I'm married uh, and we're expecting our our first baby. And it's like yeah, she she didn't didn't even think of you and it, it's not like there's some sort of this deep feelings he previously had are some in some way um processed it's just a clean cut there um maybe that's also um one of the reason it feels unsatisfying M maybe i just wish to to have some some sort of lecture there for at least for him um or even if 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 he would have broken down at this mold because oh my gosh uh, she's no longer um an an option for him or what what whatever you want to call it um that would be fine too but it it feels like it, this this whole plot is is presented and goes into nothing so yeah what's the point of it maybe there's something coming up in the future but yeah in just for this episode it didn't fit in for me in in no way i think we <clears throat> i think we've said that to a few things already that were just thrown at us in season one where we always were like okay is it coming back is it going to be used interestingly but it's still i guess um yeah a feeling that definitely is strong in this season at so many corners of okay why am i seeing this now is this going to be worthwhile or not um, I definitely had these thoughts a lot when I was watching it for the first time, so I definitely um, can identify with that. So, do you want to say anything to Garibaldi? Uh, a little bit. I, I wonder how much it might have helped if Garibaldi's backstory bits in this first season were more connected, because we got an entire episode about his past life being in this corrupt cop environment and building sort of a found family there and this got sort of resolved quote-unquote in in a separate episode and now we learn this completely unrelated thing about this and if maybe these two past live episodes were a little bit more interconnected maybe this would be a little bit more satisfying to see ah okay this keeps coming up this is something that is connected 
uh, but right now, like you say, Mike, I can totally see how this doesn't really fit in with anything that we've learned about uh, Garibaldi so far. Um, the only way that I ex explain it to myself at this point in the show is a little bit that maybe it tells us more about how Garibaldi relates to big world events. Like just in last week's episode, we had his stance being like, oh, the Lombardi want to display a big war hero of theirs here. This is a massive diplomatic incident. Fine, but personally, I don't really care about that. I just say this is a very bad idea because it's just going to cause problems. I feel like he is very often very distanced from the government, very distanced from the big world events. He's this everyday man that we have. And I feel like this would have been his stance on Mars as well if he didn't have somebody there that he knows personally, even if this connection is kind of very distant. And for me, it tells me a little bit about Garibaldi's character that this woman for him was always sort of this option, I guess you can call it, and he never really engaged with that actively until there's a crisis that forces him to. And then suddenly this is this mystery where he sets everything in motion to resolve it and to get to this contact um, just because this is something that he now on a personal level relates to. And I, I don't know, this this is feels like it's emerging as a quirk of Garibaldi's for me in this watch through, where he's somebody who will get really passionate about uh, about stuff, but needs to relate to him on a very personal level. If it's just about, oh, Mars is under attack and people are dying, I feel like he would have a much easier time to be very distanced from that. And, you know, this, this is just something where, for me, it fits into this character a little bit. Um, what you said before you go ahead and too far of uh, the point I want to to add um, something to because um, you, you said if it was mentioned earlier that there was this woman on Mars um, I would totally agree if this if this if appeared earlier um, it would feel more connected to everything this now this this yeah sudden appearance of, of this information and this person feels like it was yeah uh, something the the author just came up with and added it to to this um episode um because yeah there's the, also this this situation that there was a woman he was so interested that he was so connected with that they were talking about marriage um and in the same episode right in the beginning we have this scene with him and Talia um, in, in, in the tube. Um, it just this doesn't fit in because he's like trying to, to get her for a date or whatever. Um, and the next moment he's, oh my gosh, this, this woman I didn't uh, contact for how long um, I, I have to contact her. I have to see if she's all right. It doesn't feel convincing um, to turn around so quickly on an emotional level if, oh. if you don't have the the background already put in to me it actually does <laughs> okay it, it, for me it's, maybe maybe it's because we've seen it the second time i, I don't know yeah I, I, I was just thinking about i mean what, what for me at the moment clicked actually was that the two things that i know about his backstory that um here come together is his drinking problem and this exact fact he has not contacted her in two years he has been pushing that thought away but as soon as there's the risk that something happened to her that she's dead that she's not safe it 
comes up with so much passion. He breaks so much, so many rules to get to her, um, which for me feels like he is the kind of person who pushes things away. Like he pushes things at a distance. He pushes emotions away. And the thing when you do that with emotions, when you are that distance constantly, is you need help to push them away. You can drink them away if you need that. But And at some point they come back much more than is appropriate, much more than you can deal with. And I feel like that's what happened to him here. And maybe that connection I can make because I know him better because I've seen the rest. But for me, that was really like, okay, he should have contacted her. He didn't. He pushed it away. And now it all blew up into his face. Mm. Um, I think that that can definitely happen to people. The question is what that tells us about them. Are they, are they, have they have their poor, have their poor judgment? How reliable are they? All of these questions are open, of course, but I think that definitely is a thing that people experience. I totally agree there. It's just that for me, it, it didn't feel convincing that, that this, this happened just now because it just, yeah, has no connection to the, his, his character and past so far yes i think that it's not random yeah yeah it feels random i think what we would need here earlier in the show maybe would have been more more situations where names were dropped where things were said that we see characters actually processing stuff and not just always fill in the gaps in our head probably he told them at some point mm -hmm. i think for me there's also just this tension where the, the the ending to this little storyline, like you mentioned, Mike, feels extremely unsatisfying. And I'm a little bit conflicted there because on one hand, I think it's perfectly reasonable that, yeah, he does all of these things to suddenly get into contact with her only to learn that, yeah, there's, there's not really this big connection there. And from his side, it wasn't really there before the crisis hit. And why should it be there from her side? Like she has no reason to be in this. So uh, on the one hand, in terms of, does it make sense? I completely agree with it. But on the other hand, I am left as the audience with that same un dissatisfaction. And then it's just not a great feeling to be left with or not a very convincing feeling to be left with. Um, so yeah, this is definitely something that might make more sense in a bigger picture at some point. But standing here on its own, it doesn't really do it that well. And of course, it should at this point in the show, of course. Um, if we are over Garibaldi's emotional state in, in that regard. Uh, world building wise, I do think it's very interesting that he knows about the Psychor installation there that he utilizes to get this contact. So, I mean, that's just, he's a detective and he's been doing this for a long time, sure. Uh, and I am very interested by the fact that Mars blows up here and now. Um, to me, it feels very much like this is the distant civil war breaking out that you hear about in the news, but that doesn't really affect you very much. Like, I think to back to news about things are going on in Myanmar, things are going on in Nigeria. These are these things that you hear about on TV and they can legitimately worry you. Like people in this show watch this on TV and are worried about it, but it's also very far removed from where you actually live. It's not something that will have immediate repercussions. And like you, Mike, mentioned, this doesn't feel like something that's, is really going to be a, an overarching thing for now. Very much like the real news story. This feels for me like something that is very worrying on Babylon 5 right now. And next week, it's still going to be happening on Mars, but people won't really be talking about it on Babylon 5 because there's more immediate things to worry about. And just as a portrayal that stuff like this exists in this universe, I really like it. 
yes. maybe to add for the world building stuff, I really um, like the the news part that was before the uh, report about the Mars colony got in um, about the, wait, uh, the maintaining presence in space. Therefore, I think it's um, Babylon 5 they were talking about that um, someone from the Indonesian consort consortium, I'm not sure how yeah, is it yeah. pronounced, um, uh, that he, there was someone um, asking about why less affluent na nations um, have to pay an equal share for um, yeah, maintaining this presence, but don't get the equal um, benefits, share of the benefits from it, where I was like, oh, that's interesting to, to hear. I mean, what kind of bullshit is this to say, hey, yeah, you have less money than the rest, but you have to pay the same as everyone, and but you don't get the same uh, out of it. Try this in the European Union and you have everything on fire. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I really like this because it gives us this insight. The, the Earth Alliance with this in mind really feels like at some point, every like everyone decided ah we are going to be all equal on this planet now so this means we're even right everybody's on the same page and like half the globe just looked at it and was like oh great so we just get to pay and don't get any of the benefits that's just fantastic yeah, it's sucks in in general if it's, it's a general thing if not not just babylon 5 it's it's with with um, education and everything you just can't yeah. can't go to the point where yeah well you are all treated equal no the background isn't equal so therefore you can't treat the people equal and i think this is kind of where maybe babylon 5 even takes a swipe at this idea of oh it's an optimistic future so everybody is just unified and this feels very much like something that was a big bold gesture that was made where everybody is now one and earth is united and it doesn't take into account all the real problems that come with that yes i mean you see in this episode how much um this um global intergalactic society that humanity has to deal with is kind of blowing up around their heads because I mean, it's the same kind of symptom that Mars now has this free Mars movement and the conversation Garibaldi has with these people at, at the bar who are um, uh, mad that their taxes go into keeping Mars alive because it is, you know, it is not terraformed. You need a lot of technology to be alive on Mars. You just see that it got super big and humans um, struggle to keep um, that order in place because it's yeah even bigger than now and we already have these problems now on one which is something that I definitely will want to get back to because it ties into another point that uh, I've learned about. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, like you, what you mentioned just now is also this beautiful side where we kind of see both sides of the story, right? We see people who are like, man, I absolutely hate having to invest into these Marsies, which is obviously in that context the bad guys. But then we also have the background, yeah, but there's legitimate the entire governments on Earth who basically have the stance of why do we pay for the domes on Mars when our own irrigation systems are not properly taken care of by Earth Alliance. And then suddenly you think, oh, yeah, they kind of have a point there, right? So it's it's kind of on all sides you see how it's just not really holding together very well. And yeah. I guess that's what happens if you have like a world government but no magic technologies to fix all poverty immediately. And I'm, I'm not really sure what it was they, these, these guys in the bar were saying, but it felt to me, I mean, they are like, yeah, the Marsies, we go there and I'm, I'm not sure what they were talking, um, but it felt like 
calling for genocide, kind of. There's a lot of racism against uh, people born and living on Mars, especially when you're a human who was born on Mars, you get a lot of discrimination like that. Which, I mean, just tells us, you know, Earth people are extremely racist against aliens, so it's not a big jump to be racist against people from other planets as well, and then it gets kind of snowballs from there. And... Even there's even this this line, hey, there are humans too. Uh, no, they are not, or whatever they they answered. What bullshit! A life is a life, and you have no right to wipe it out just because you feel like it, or they you don't like their face, or whatever. Yeah, it's it's. I think also like this justification, or or basically Babylon Five telling us this justification that you might have of oh, but this is different because the alien races are biologically different. Like it's. This is not what that kind of mindset is about. It's always going to be dehumanizing, even if it's literal humans that you're talking about. So uh, on 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 the, this note, I guess it it fits in with all of the sort of Earth politics that we've seen so far and the sort of simmering tensions that exist down there. Yes, maybe mm, Earth politics. I mean, this also plays into the other plot with the planet, but maybe we can talk about it at this point. Because there's one specific thing that I was wondering about, and that was when the other ship um, with the other general showed up, mm -hmm. and they were in this power uh, 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 problem with uh, Sinclair. Um, and they tried to make contact to Earthstone, but were jammed as well. And Mars also couldn't get through, mm -hmm. and contact to Mars was also jammed. Why? You mean like... In universe, what's what's happening there? Um, I mean, basically, the idea is you can't send direct messages between stars, right? That would take forever because of light speed. So what they have is a network of relay stations throughout hyperspace, but these relay stations have a limited capacity of how much information you can can send through there. And there's like sometimes you know it's purple channel, it's gold channel, it's like these priority channels that are there. And essentially, once these once these relay stations are, are jammed in some capacity, the network just kind of starts breaking down. And I think this is what's happening here, where because stuff is going down on Mars, in and around the entire solar system, stuff is just getting worse. So are they jamming Babylon 5 on purpose so that the important messages can get through because of the crisis, or...? Is it just overload? Yeah. I would assume it's, it's mainly just overload. Yeah, because I was uh, thinking uh, what that means, that you cannot get through to Earth Dome in such a crisis, and we were always wondering what the hell is happening to Earth politics. I was wondering that, yeah. okay. It has an in-world explanation that works for now. That's fine. Okay, I thought, thought uh, it was a bit different that the communication um, around Mars was jammed, be like like on, on purpose, mm. so the... the um, the rebels, the the civil war, or whatever you want to call this, um, can't communicate with each other properly, and yeah, the the problem is if you jam it on purpose, there there's also a general problem with connection. Yeah, that was what I thought was happening. But I mean, that's that's basically in line with this idea that. It's it's one big communications network that we're talking about. So if there's one node that is getting jammed up, then yeah, it just creates problems beyond that case as well. But hey, maybe that's that's a good question we can uh, give out to our lurkers. What is it that you think? Is it 
the jamming on purpose? Is it just an overload of the uh, communication system? That's not a bad question. We'll have to keep that in mind. That's true. That's a good question. Yeah. Okay. So. That. No, <laughs> I wasn't said okay at the same uh, time. I uh, just, yeah, think that's it about Mars and Garibaldi and this part of non-directly connected world building we have there. Yeah, we will definitely return to Earth politics uh, in this next storyline as well in due time. But maybe let's start at the beginning and talk a little bit about Dral. Dral, as he arrives on the station, as our little bit of insight into Membari culture. Because we've been learning a lot about Membari very recently. And now we have somebody who has a lot of insight into this and basically straight up tells Selene, yeah, things aren't so good back home. It's uh, not looking so great. And I'm just kind of ready to move on from all this. Uh, just as another like character of the week, how did you like him? How did he strike you? How does this kind of add to your perception of the Membari? I have to say I found it a bit difficult um, to... Um... Yeah, put him to to analyze him. Let's say it that way, um, because on one hand, he with the the first question he asks um, out of nowhere, uh, Delenn, um was about what was the third principle of life yes. or something like that. Um, uh, and it's technically it's the 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 yeah that that the group the the benefit for all um, is more important than your own wishes and stuff like that. Um, and then later he, when he starts, yeah, the, the, it's, it's not the same as before and everything. And I was on, on one hand I was, yeah, I kind of get this from, from, from Delenn, uh, in a way, but the way he phrases it, it feels more like there was this this um yeah purpose for for living for others mm. for a really really long time and now maybe maybe because of the connections to, to babylon 5 and the diplomatic things uh, the membari start to realize okay there is more than an us there's also a me uh, and that more of them are interested in developing their their own person their their own character, their own purpose, um, and then um, Dral has a problem with that. Hmm. And oh. this, it, I, I can't, I can totally understand this. This Mimbari that's saying no, where I I need to look after myself also because you just can't live for others only. Um, you you have to to get to a certain point of development in your life to get to this point but before this there has to be some sort of um yeah experience of what about me and i, I don't mean this in the in the, in the um in the um yeah way of of egoism or or anything it's just what is it that i can do in this life and yeah, I don't think that's one thing that is um, in, in any way supported in the Minbari culture. So it kind of feels like just 
And I'm sorry, I have to say this again, but just an old man ranting about where everything was was better um, in the in the past and disregarding what um, the maybe the younger generation wants or generally the people the Minbari now wants because yeah everything is changing and cultures and people do also and that he's holding on to something that is obviously not working anymore i think this is the first time i've ever heard somebody pull this third principle question that he asked so hard into this characterization but it it works very well and i'm, I'm just running through my mind right now like as a point of diversion for forming body culture this makes a very lots uh, this makes a lot of sense where uh the Mimbari had this like ultimate moment of unified purpose their war against the humans was this like ultimate thing there is a great cause and everybody needs to sacrifice themselves for that and such and yeah we don't really know how the capitulation eventually played out but we've very much learned by now that this purpose was then lost because the warriors were told to capitulate without getting an explanation why and now they don't really have that purpose anymore and the religious caste kind of fractured around that as well and nobody is quite sure so this idea that yeah this this entire principle of you must be willing to lay down your life for the greater purpose is great and all as long as you know that the greater purpose is 100 justified and good that you know doesn't really exist in the real world doesn't exist when you actually interact with other species and such so the idea that babylon 5 is sort of this catalyst could be very interesting um what i was going to say about the interactions and it kind of plays into this is that every time dylan is visited by an old friend be that the poets a few episodes back or him now i am surprised how emotional and how involved Membari are actually in their interactions with one another it's like by human standards almost like a very intimate way that they interact with each other which is very handsy very like open and and just very almost theatrical in Ralph's performance here which is very much going against this image of yeah kind of space elves that they have like if I imagine how they present themselves with the great like order and everything is about triangles and everything is very ceremonial and such um, I wouldn't expect them to be this jovial behind doors. So that's just something that I find interesting. And, you know, if this is something that is happening in Mimbari society now that they're trying to embrace this more private side of themselves as something where you can actually develop your own identity and such, I could see how these both sides of them don't really gel very much and somebody get completely disenfranchised with that. But maybe this is something that just feels like this to us because there is a lot of um physical contact that's just been sexualized and i mean definitely that's... in in a way of between a woman and uh, a man and a woman but um also between men like i mean how the most of of people i th uh, what what if if two men hacked longer or anything or hold hands or anything most people would say yeah these these two are are together and and everything um i think it's i it, it's just maybe something i think this is that's uh kind of thing but it feels like this this physical contact between 
especially with men, uh, as an example, is something that is in the, the Asian countries um, more prominent, that it's not overly sexualized and, and everything. Um, and yeah, that's maybe because everything is directed in this um, way um, that feels so, yeah, different with, with, with a Mimbari here. Though it's a nice thing. Uh, I don't want to uh, put this down. No, I, I would definitely say that, you know, this is very much also through the perspective that we have as, as this sort of audience. Um, and I, I, I think it's just a deliberate choice that was made, I would say, on, on how, how this is portrayed, being very much aware of how it's, how it's going to be perceived. I really just thought of him as someone looking for a purpose. And I mean, this is not the first time that we learn that this is a very positive thing in the Mbari culture. We just have to remember the the, the person looking for the grail, what's his name, Aldous, who also uh, was very much respected by Mbari in general. So I, I think that here we have maybe an old person who is not um, on board with a lot of uh, changes in Mbari society since the war but notices that and looks for a new purpose and doesn't become this old grandpa shouting, <laughs> shouting at young people for what they're doing, but it's like he has realizes he has to enter a new stage in his life and therefore feels the calling to come to the station, which is something we can also discuss uh, when we discuss the planet, probably, because there are other questions for you too. Okay. Um, but that's definitely how I saw him, just realizing I need a new journey because the old one is over. He's he's definitely an old man who knows how to remove himself from the situation better than most. Yeah. So I I would say wouldn't say that what I said and what what you saw there um, is exclusive. No, uh, I think that would it would both work rather well together because I mean if if your your um, purpose in in life that is yeah taken away from you or or anything like that. Um, the obvious, the smartest choice is to look for a new purpose, and that what is what he's doing. First of all, I would like to know the other principles of of sentient life. I don't know if we ever get to know them, but if the third one is your, I mean, it's not necessarily that you have to sacrifice yourself for you, that you have the ability to see the worth in a self sacrifice for a purpose. Um, that is an interesting point. Also, when we think of the conversation, um. Delenn had with Londo and Sinclair right in the beginning of the episode and then later with Sinclair, which is something I'm right now trying to recall. But yes, basically, if we all become so cynical as Londo, um, then and the hope for a better world in the future is gone, then life becomes purpose and evolution is completely for nothing, mm. which is uh, interesting that we see her state that. Um and then she is reminded of this principle by her old mentor. I think that plays together very well in the light of the events of this episode. Um, and I think it is, yeah, something I would expect to say from a member of the religious caste, but also it is so... It is something I couldn't swallow. I would always be cynical, cynically drinking with Londo, I think. So, yeah, that's why I, maybe why I stumbled across that. Because, yeah, um, 
I find it sometimes problematic to in everything and always see the purpose and to always say that we have to keep the hope up to have a better world for the future. I think very often we also just have to grant people their cynicism and sarcasm and their dark emotions when it's uh, appropriate or when something happens. That's just uh, because it's also a conversation I've had with a friend recently. So um, maybe that's why I stumbled across that so much. I mean, our negative emotions are there for a purpose and the purpose is to show us there is a problem and you can just solve the problem if you accept the negative feelings and work them through to see maybe a solution or a different way. Therefore, yeah, I can totally understand this, this all positive and everything is there for a purpose. Um, yeah, I totally can understand, um, why there are others who would like to strangle those people with their, uh, fortune cookie, um, messages. And I mean, it is very telling that you have the religious caste of the Rimbadi who has come up with this great wisdom and then goes to the warrior caste and explains to them why they are the ones who have to sacrifice themselves in the war now. Like, it's very telling <laughs> that they have a very easy position talking about all the great things that you need to look out for in life because, yeah, there's this entire part of their society that has to deal with all the really bad stuff and that they don't really have to engage in, or at least from what we've seen, they don't really do that. So it's... Yes. This is kind of the thing where if you look at Nerun in the last episode, he understands what it means to be cynical. He's very good at that. And I think for good reason. And I suggest her saying that if we don't have that, if we don't provide the hope for a better future, then evolution is futile. Maybe it is futile. Maybe it's just a funny coincidence, a super weird quirk of the universe. And it doesn't make much sense, but you can just kind of work out to have a great time here. You know, that is also like a view on things that I would really put my name under. So, yeah. And doing nothing is like dying. So at least give it a try. Yeah. And also just accept when, when things are, are dark or when things get lost or when there is like a process in your society or on your planet or in your universe where you say this is bad and a lot of things that are good will end and we will see a lot of dark things in the near future. We are going to survive it. New good things are going to come. I think that is basically out of question because, you know, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, to just accept that and to also have this, uh, let that be. I think that is something that in these spiritual mentalities that we see here in, in Baris, but that you can also find out a lot of humans that is often lost. Like we definitely have a reason to mourn when we look at the extinction rates right now on our on our planet, and that doesn't mean that everything is for nothing, but it's it's a fact that is there. But we can go on. <laughs> no, what it's it's definitely after this really heavy a topic. Uh, when when you uh, I'm not sure where who it was, but when you mentioned the. Uh, the, the first question, uh, or the, the, the third principle again, um, I had the, right now this, this moment, wasn't Drow's answer a really that joke moment? Because when the, the, he asked this, asked this question, what's the third principle? And, uh, Delen is like, draw and no, that's not the answer. <laughs> Yes, That's... of course it's not. <laughs> it's a very big part of their their energy. I feel like is that yeah, he is 
you know, maybe, maybe this, maybe we are thinking too much into all of this. Maybe people aren't appreciating his jokes anymore, and this is why he has to leave the planet and and go elsewhere. <laughs> Actually, I have to say, I'm meeting an old mentor kind of person of mine. Sometimes he was my uh, like tutor in university in Germany. Means he have an older student giving you extra lessons for free, uh, that so that you make it through your first exams ever. You don't get any credit points for it, but it's very recommended that you go because otherwise you will most likely fail. And the older student who is now just a friend of mine from my first semester, whenever I meet him for a coffee, he comes with a linguistic question. He's always like, like, tell me the difference between a, 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 a phone name and a phone, like just some some linguistics uh, 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 vocabulary there and constantly. And then my first answer is always like, oh, hi. And he's like, no, wrong. We also have, we have that exact same interaction, actually. So that was kind of sweet. Um, but yeah, it's mostly not such a philosophical question, so it hits differently. But I found that very sweet. I have to call him again. It's so really... that was to lighten up the mood. <laughs> Let's get to the next thing. I mean, if we are working on lightening up the mood, I feel like a good candidate for this is uh, Dr. Is Dr. Tasaki. The absolutely crazy scientist guy that we meet here, who I think no matter how bad the world gets, has not a cynical bone in his body. And he will excitedly plummet to his death for new discoveries at any day until uh, Ivanova chews him out rightly for it. Her monologue. Oh, it's so beautiful. great. <laughs> Her monologue is great, but I'm also... It's, it's so refreshing to see this side of Babylon 5 every now and then that there are these people who would otherwise be definitely in Starfleet who are just absolutely excited to be in space and to be explorers and they get into trouble and it's it's really nice to see. In general, any sequence in these episodes where somebody pilots a shuttle, I feel like are emotional high points. We will get to another one very, very quite soon. Um, but, you know, what they discover is the seismic activity on Epsilon 3 and, Mike, you already mentioned it was nice to see a little bit more about this planet again that we've sort of been orbiting for all of the seasons without ever paying much attention to. So, yeah, what, what do we think about the great machine, maybe also the vision that it produces, and just, yeah, this whole big main discovery that we have here on our hands? I think so. By, by I, I mean, it is objectively a great machine. <laughs> it's It can do all kinds, it can explode planets, it can make visions, it's clearly great, and it is a machine, so I'm comfortable calling him that oh i'm it's it's he uh we, we never get to know his name the the guy who is the sorry who is the heart of of this machine yeah we i, I don't think we we get to know his name he's he's the old keeper i, I would say the, the old heart of the machine like you put it um yeah but i mean he's learning the the human language um just by being there while these uh, other guys appearing later have to scan and, and download the, the language to communicate and not necessarily do this in a good way. So, yeah, it's, it's really impressive to, to see this, um, which means, yeah, it kind of feels like an yeah machine to, to learn things, to storage knowledge maybe well that, that it this would make the most sense of of all this and well because knowledge is the greatest weapon treasure whatever you want to call it that um, exists therefore 
it would fit. Though on the other hand, it's like this, oh, there we have a new some, some, some strange uh, machine here and no one knows what it does. Kind of reminds me, I don't know if everyone, anyone would watch the, uh, oh, not, not E.T., um, um, was it Titan? Oh, gee, I can't remember the name. It, it was an uh, animation movie. Um, kind of felt a bit like like um, a treasure, treasure hunting thing where um, Earth was destroyed and there was a group of people trying to find um, the some sort of research thing that would create a new planet for humanity. Mm. And there's this creature were like um that that re obviously really smart but a, a bit idioty on on the other hand because he's like i was asleep i i, I invented this in my sleep i don't know what it does it has a uh, there is a button on it i want to push it but i don't know what happens then it kind of feels like this a little bit it's in general a very good question we, we talk about it. there is a big giant machine in this planet what does it do well um, it translates languages very well. It can blow up the planets. And yeah, that's kind of it that we learn about here. Yeah, it's pretty good at communicating stuff. It can send big signals. And Dural talks about it in vague terms as, yeah, he can learn more knowledge than ever before. But I, I think what you said, Mikey, is, is pretty pretty much the most lucky outcome that it's some kind of big archiving thing, right? It's just collecting knowledge and probably dangerous knowledge when it's protected that well. I just remembered what the movie was called. It's called Titan uh, AI, IE. Mm -hmm. um, not sure what the English version is. But yeah, try to try to search it. It's, it's a really good film with really good music. At least I think so. Um, yeah, well, we have this this ominous thing and yeah, it, it, it kind of it's kind of a cliche again. I, I don't know how it was, how it felt in the 90s, but now it certainly is a cliche because you have this weird structure where you don't really know what it is, where you're told to keep your hands off. That's interesting because I was looking at it actually feeling quite refreshed of, oh, finally, it's not the typical trope, but it, I, I, I think I know what you're getting at. Um, for me, The Great Machine is, is so great because it's kind of this middle point that I've been looking for. We've seen Earth technology and alien technology as it is in Babylon 5, normal space travel and stuff, fine. And we've seen and mainly just heard about, okay, there's this much bigger power. There's the Vorlons that are like mystical, basically. We've seen um, the... the wondrous beings that Narn uh, talk about, that Jakar talked about when Catherine was going by them, these like godlike ascended massive entities. And now we have kind of this middle thing where there is a machine that encompasses an entire planet and it can do great things. It's almost so mythical, but at the same time, the people building it and operating it are just normal people. Like the guy that is the keeper of the heart is just is just kind of a dude and the people of his species just kind of have a spaceship. It might be a very advanced spaceship, but certainly not so advanced that it will wipe the floor with anything that Babylon 5 has to offer. And so for me, it's kind of this, okay, I start seeing now where this comes from, where things transition from being normal into mythical. And this is the part that for me goes a little bit against tropes because usually if I look at science fiction, it's a case of, 
there's this extremely ancient precursor technology and there's modern technology and magically there's nothing in between. So that this is a little bit different for me at least felt fresh to some degree. Maybe the magical part just feels like or mythical part um, feels like um, this, yeah, that there has to be a person uh, operating this thing and this kind of yeah this this feels really odd compared um to to everything else to put it in this realm of of um yeah mythical magical thingy but at the same time of course it's also true it's it's this giant macguffin that you're not supposed to touch and that you know will probably be very important later on because of course it will be it's a Chekhov's gun um but yeah how about you um yeah, I mean, my main theory about this machine we cannot discuss yet. Um, but I have another question for you both, because I think I can ask that question at this point already. Maybe we can also ask the audience that question, um, because we have a lot of plots coming together around this planet where the old keeper is dying. And the planet is about to blow up. We have another Earthship showing up. We have at that exact time Mars blowing up, metaphorically. And uh, we have, as another coincidence, our Membari friend arriving, um, who then finds us calling in this machine. And we see that uh, that um, the, the old keeper can broadcast telepathically or whatever his image. Do you think it's a coincidence that all of these three plots meet at this planet, at this point. So what would be the alternative that the machine somehow affected this happening or that they... That's the question, that the machine affected this happening, that the machine saw that the other things were happening and set something into motion. And that would be the question here. What does it look like? I would buy into a kind of foundation-esque idea. This idea that this is a machine that collects so much information and has so much computing power that it effectively calculates <clears throat> that it effectively calculates all possible future scenarios and then picks points, uh, a point in time where it says, this is where all of these things will be happening. This is the perfect time to activate myself and become known. So not necessarily that it's affecting all of these things actively, but it's sort of choosing, okay, this is sort of a junction in time where it makes sense uh, to happen so that it's not a coincidence purely. I can totally buy that. And you? Mm, yeah, I would, also, how to put it? Um, I certainly wouldn't think that it is caused by the machine. I would go more in, in the direction that, that you already um, put out there, Alex. Um, I think it's, it's yeah, like like prediction because so far I would consider it more like a, technolo a technology to uh, gather knowledge, to maybe even generate knowledge to a certain degree. Uh, and maybe that at this time the um, machine decides um, to show itself in the um, sense of making sure to survive um, itself because there is obviously a limited time you can use or it can use a keeper 
uh, and therefore when someone or in this case obviously at least two people because um Delenn later says that she would have seen Sinclair down there and I can totally um, agree with her there um that this machine decide okay now is the perfect time I have a good chance to get a new keeper right now so I can keep running because I think that is obviously also I mean if you, if you are intelligent enough to put a fail safe on this thing so no one can um, do any strange things with it of course there would be other ways uh, implemented there to make sure the thing keeps on running Absolutely. Yes. interesting I think we are going to have more discussions of that kind at some point um, we've talked a lot now about the metaphysical implications of the machine and its ability to predict the future and stuff like this. Um, do we maybe want to talk very briefly about the machine as a physical thing? Uh, particularly, what do you all think about the little adventuring quest that we see Sinclair and, and uh, else go on of like evading shooting lasers, finding dead alien bodies and that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, let's stick with that first. Yeah, but... I say something to this. Maybe you should take a drink <laughs> so your voice can't <laughs> Um I have to say I had a really strong Mass Effect feeling there, especially when um, uh, Sinclair and Ivanova go on the planet, which I have to add there was something I was really enraged to see. I mean, boy, you developed so good so far and now you go alone with Ivanova without security team on a planet where you don't know what to expect without any equipment. Gee, I want to punch him so badly. I mean, in his defense, in his defense, it's one thing that he can contain himself when there's a crime lord running around on the station. When it's an entire planet that is a giant alien machine, cut the guy some slack. That's way too exciting not to go on this adventure. But also because it's some security guys. And then, but, but also because I think it's a classified what might be down there. So um, I, I always understood it that they had to see it firsthand so that the information was spread as little as possible. And with all the defenses the planet had, it was probably more risky to land with more people than with less people. Yes, but still, I mean, he's the commander of Babylon 5. How could you send someone this important there without backup? That's it's, sorry, no. It's going to lead a lot of sort of uh, bending forwards and backwards to make this work, that this is really the best situation, the best solution to whatever situation there is. Yeah, I, I can get behind that, but... Yeah, I, I can believe this relapse of Sinclair totally, but I do want to punch him because of it as well. I mean, even even if I come over like some annoying mommy, I, I, honestly, I, if I was there, I would be standing at the docking bay with the baseball uh, bat in hand. So where did you go? Did we talk this through? Why did you do something like this again? We can be a little bit disappointed in Ivanova because she gave such an impassioned speech to the stupid scientist and then when Sinclair does it, she's like, oh yeah, sure, that sounds like a good idea, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, they are not civilians. 
I mean, what 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 do we think of the adventure uh, uh, Londo and his Newman Bowie friends are taking together and of their interactions? Because I found them kind of lovely. Yes, I would be. I think the the way they got there. Uh, I mean, when, when Lando was like, hmm, uh, what 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 kind of of uh, thing was he was he searching for? Let me, um, something like like um, he he was searching like some sort of button, really. Yeah, if I was an emergency button. Where would I be? Yeah, and, and it's like, oh my god. Yeah. What I know. Well, then I also forgot, I wanted to say that when we were talking about, what is our Membari called? Our Drow. Drow. When we were talking about him in the first place, when um, he's introduced to Londo, and Londo has this, this... Children's song. Yes, this halfway nervous breakdown it's... over how he just doesn't understand humans. <laughs> don't know about... he meant anything. It's one of my favorite London moments, how you just see him losing his nerves on not understanding that song. And then they want to leave, like, yeah, calm down then. And they're like, no, you have to stay. I love that. Yes, that was really cute. Also, I have to admit, when, when Drow says secretly to, to Dylan, I like that song. Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was so cute. Oh, my God. Yes. I have to say. That turned adorable. Yeah, and I mean, we have talked about Alondo's depression for a while earlier. And I think here we see him, he tries to take his uh, job as a diplomat, he tries to take his job as an ambassador seriously, but his cynicism just kicks him in the ass everywhere he goes. I love that. I have to say both of these scenes that you just described really brought me back to our first discussions about The Gathering. Because one of the things that we talked about there was that it's nice that this show has kind of the sitcom feeling. But at the same time, we don't have a bunch of 20-somethings that are going on great adventures. So these are people who have led actual lives. And this was the big takeaway for Londo from me here, where this isn't a guy who is going into this story as his big destiny and he is now learning what his life is about. This is a guy who has led a life and who, by all accounts, has had the high point of his life much, much earlier in his career. These, like this, these landings that he's talking about, where he was a pilot and it was heroic and it was great, this is what he is always talking about when he's depressed about the golden days. Like this is where he felt like he was in in such great moods and everything was fine. And him reliving that is really vivid. Where he had purpose. Where he had purpose, yes, absolutely. And it also like kind of points you into this direction. Yeah, he is so nostalgic for the golden days of the Centauri Republic now, but maybe he's just missing being young. Like maybe it's as simple as, you know, he got promoted into a position where he's just not that happy anymore because it's it's not that purposeful for him. Yes, but um, I found it interesting that we have this serious moment where Dylan and Wall understand that uh, Londo also understands this purpose or this risk of sacrificing himself. Like they see him as this person that comes from a culture that was shaped by many different drives, like we always see. We we've seen a lot of Han Harman Barry culture as as, as uh, has been shaped, and here we also had in the in one of the first scenes the reminder that all of Centauri culture is very much shaped by this kind of conflict that they have with the Nar, not just with the Nar, but also with others. So it's a completely different drive to develop a culture, and so we have there this moment of yes, this I understand too. Yeah, which yeah, I really like to see that. 
even they can find a common ground. Sometimes you won't believe that Centauri and, and Bari can find any kind of common ground. And here we've seen that. Oh, it also was kind of approaching already when they were talking about these uh, trade routes um, where they came to a rather quick and civilized agreement, which feel, felt so much different if you would imagine there being Jacquard and Lando, yeah. um, which would try to stab each other in the back the moment they can. And this was so peaceful and, and harmonic at this moment. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't really believe it at first. And there was, oh, this is so cute. It is. But also we have to keep, maybe make a mental note for some time that we there see that Londo has accepted the fact that his reality is few on the world. Their way of doing things is shaped by this hatred, by the circle of hatred that they have just accepted as a kind of point in the universe to be there. I mean, this is very important because it also tells us Londo isn't blind. When he makes these decisions, when he does have this cynicism about him, he knows what he's doing, which is definitely important. Um, the other thing that reminded me a, a lot of our gathering discussion is that once again we get reminded this is a living universe and humans are part of this universe, which means aliens will talk about humans when humans aren't there and they will make fun of humans because just like we look at a lot of the alien stuff in this show and are like, man, that's that's kind of stupid or odd or weird. <laughs> we have a lot of these things too. And yeah, aliens will absolutely look at children's rhymes from humans and be like, that is the wildest shit that makes no sense why the fuck would any child be calmed by these news about things happening this is this is strange so i just really like this that we get yeah just aliens interacting with other aliens just people interacting with other people because to this day far too often there's this notion of ah we need to have humans in the scene because that's what the audience identifies with and here we see no it's it's about characters that people identify with and they can be green blue with giant uh, peacock hair and doesn't make a difference it's it's still just a lot of being adorable yeah where were we well now we have had everybody adventuring to the planet uh do we maybe want to start talking about earth's involvement in this story and bring back some of that politics in there because yeah it's not long before not only people from babylon 5 are interacting with this but the big guns get called in. I mean, I have something that I definitely want to talk about, but I don't want to block your start. Um, yeah, well, it's like this um, gold digger mentality. Or at least it felt like, like that to me. Oh, there's something valuable. Let's go there quickly so we can save it for ourselves. I think gold digger mentality is a very nice way of putting it. Um, for, for me, this is nice because throughout the whole first season, you can kind of ask yourself the question, how is Babylon 5 still a thing, right? Like, the president is on a campaign of preserving Earth cultures. There is Home Guard. There's pro-Earth terrorism going on. Like, nobody really seems all that interested in helping it. There were budget cuts and stuff. So why why is it even still a thing? How does Earth Force keep it open? And I feel like now we have an answer to this question. It's a military outpost to them. Like, not many people actually care about the mission of Babylon 5 and Babylon 5 as a diplomatic meeting place. But as soon as it can be utilized of furthering Earth's interest and, like, 
you know, this is our territory now and we want to claim this planet, then suddenly everybody is completely on board. And yeah, that it plays into exactly this kind of mentality. As long as you can get some money out of it, they will definitely utilize it as much as they can. Which would actually, for me, maybe make it seem more possible that uh, um, Babylon 5 was jammed by Earth on purpose. Um, because the decision that Commander Sinclair's full jurisdiction there was only made when the crisis was resolved anyways. Mm -hmm. So that the president kind of... I mean, right now we have a president who is not... Uh, um, who, 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 who tries to satisfy both both sides. Like, he tries to interact with all of these uh, 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 Earth-centered uh, 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 um, ideologies and groups, but he also tries to get the others into it. So he's really, like, you know, doing these difficult steps. So yeah. it could have kind of been not making a statement and let them sort things out so that afterwards he can make one on it. He's definitely doing a very politician-y kind of path here, and, yeah, that... In that context, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, if if we take maybe a step back uh, and and look at at the arrival of the Hyperion, is it called right? The the big ship that arrives. Yeah, it's it's the Hyperion. Which from here on out, we will always talk about Hyperion cruisers as this type of vessel. And I think it's a very striking portrayal of Earth Force because I think this is the first time we really see a big Earth Force vessel here, right? We have seen. Vaughn ships, we've seen some alien vessels around the station. This, I think, is by far the biggest thing that we've seen flying around. It's bigger than any of the civilian vessels and such. And you were talking earlier in the discussion about Mars about how Earth Alliance feels very much like it's too big for its own good, like it's not really holding together. And I think this ship kind of epitomizes this. Like, how does Earth become a major power in this universe? It's the newcomer. It's not technologically advanced. It just has a lot of everything, and this ship really looks like it. It's not very advanced. It's a giant brick with a bunch of scaffolding on it, but it's massive. And compared to all the other alien vessels, I can easily buy... This isn't on power terms in terms of technology. It's just a massive industrial brick that can shoot a lot of guns, and that's basically how it functions. And, yeah, from, from the way this ship is designed to the way it is used in this episode, it's just we bring the big guns here, and we claim this is our stomping grounds and we shoot at everything that goes with it. There I can kind of see, yeah, this is how Earth got so big. It just ag aggressively expands and builds up massive industry to the point where it's not really super sustainable. We see it like fracturing on the seams everywhere, which is then also an explanation why doesn't everybody do that? Well, because if you want to stay a major power for longer than 12 years, you might want to have a more sustainable approach, but Earth isn't really about that at this moment. And I mean, that, that is also how uh, the way how the military seems to, to function or what their mindset is. Because, I mean, when Pierce, I think Pierce, Captain mm -hmm. Pierce, something like that, um, arrives there, he's uh, telling Sinclair, yeah, if they know we are here, they are less inclined to start something. He's he's like yeah an elephant in in uh and a porcelain shop porcelain shop um like he he is there's there's no sense of of diplomatic or um not not even a sense of of communication in in him it's just it's mine 
and that's it. He he very much has the right mindset for uh, the warrior cast that visited last week. Like this, completely. I'm. I don't have to explain myself why my gun ports are open. Go evolve. I'm just going to be here, and this is my territory now. Which, uh, yeah, we we always have to sort of ask the question: Who is representative of Earth Force as a whole? Is it Sinclair or is it this other guy? Is it uh, you know Sinclair or the Union Buster that we saw? And yeah, we are kind of getting more and more this picture that the crew of Bowden Five are all kind of oddballs in this military, which in in and of itself is a much more aggressive stance. But also because they are the only ones who had this experience. They are the only ones who have seen uh, uh, Lanier and uh, Garibaldi drive on the motorcycle through the station. Yeah. Um, they have been shaped by working and living with these other species. And um, that is an experience that uh, not many in Earth Force or on Earth have ever had the opportunity to make. And here we see that in action. And what, what kind of information does the humans, especially on Earth, but also generally in the, uh, those who are working for Earth Force, what kind of information do they get? If the information they usually get that the, the, the aliens want to take this away and that away and that away, and while reflecting or, or looking critical at the information you get is not necessarily um, a common um, ability, um, then yeah, what what would you expect what these people turn out to be? And I think on the one hand, it's this misinformation that you like these these false ideas that you get about what the aliens are like. But I think for me, a very big part is also underestimating the power that Babylon Five as a place actually has. Because let's be honest here. In reality, of course, the Nan regime would claim this planet as their own. Of course, the Centauri would claim this planet as their own. Probably even the, the Minbari would come up with some reason why their prophecy says it's their planet now. Like, it's not like this idea that every alien government is going to jump at this opportunity if they get the chance isn't actually true. We saw this with the immortality serum in Deathwalker, right? Like, immediately alien governments were sending their cruisers there to try and claim it. So... The, the, the tricky thing here is that it's not that Earth Force is necessarily wrong. It's just that Earth Force, at least Captain Pierce that we hear here, has no faith that there's any other solution to this than responding in kind with military force. And I think this is what they are blind to, that Sinclair and such haven't just seen, oh, the aliens are much better than we think they are. It's even beyond that, that they see, oh yeah, Londo is going to backstab you immediately, but you can still work with him on a different level. I can only agree to that. <laughs> There's nothing for me to add there. You put this right on point. I mean, we have this on the one side. The other thing is... Um, the, the aliens that are actually the builders of the planet, right? Or at least as far as we know. And uh, this for me is kind of interesting because in a weird way it intersects with a mass plot for me where the old Keeper tells us, oh, these aliens that have arrived, uh, they are rebels and outcasts and uh, they are aggressive and dangerous. And, I mean, of course he would say that, right? I I, I feel like it's it's kind of a weird situation because obviously in the portrayal of this episode, these are the bad guys. They start shooting very quickly. They are a little bit more primitive. They don't speak proper English. 
like some weird kind of foreigners that are coming in here, taking our planet from us, this kind of deal. But in reality, like, this planet was abandoned hundreds of years ago. Even if the original people were outcasts, it's kind of like going to Australia now and saying, oh, you're all criminals to me because, you know, when this planet, when this colony was founded, it was just a prison colony. Like, I can kind of see a world where these rebel aliens are much more sympathetic and this is why it intersects with me with Mars because, you know, Mars is an alien colony. Uh, uh, no, Mars is an Earth colony under the exact uh, human regime that we are constantly talking about. I feel like it's not so hard to talk about uh, Free Mars as a kind of freedom fighter group that wants to, you know, gain independence from this government that we spend episode after episode criticizing very heavily for being anti-alien and stuff like that. But no, in this episode it's very clear, no, these are terrorist groups that we're talking about. It's very easy to, you know, mix and match these two. And the question also is, I mean, we're told they are terrorists, but I mean, being a terrorist and just being called a terrorist is something very different, different. things. Definitely. And, you know, this is the same feeling I have kind of about these aliens. Like, yeah, we are told they are alien. Uh, we are told they are terrorists in, in their world and outcasts and such, but you know, from their perspective, I can see how this might be a little bit skewed and we don't really get a time to question that much more. But yeah, I, I, I like this element that there is some history there that very clearly is more complex than what we get to see. And I mean, if Babylon 5 was something necessary to make Centauri, the Nan, the Minbari, to communicate with each other, what did these guys the, the new appearance here, what kind of um, experience did they have? I mean, if your usual reaction of meeting each other is drawing your guns and going out for, yeah, do what we say or you die, the reaction here in this situation is somehow validated. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing. If these aliens have spent most of their time roaming in space and interacting with ships like the Hyperion, then yeah, that's that's the the logical response that you will have to most people that you come across at some point. And I mean, we don't even know what they want with the planet. Do they just want to go home to live there? Um, or, I mean, it, it, it is probably one of the few planets where not someone put their fork in and said, that's mine. So, up to this episode, this was the one thing we had learned about Epsilon 3. Like, the, the reason Babylon 5 is here, because it's the one neutral piece of land or space that they found in the entire galaxy that nobody uh, could, could claim. So they agreed on putting Babylon 5 there. So definitely this is the case. Like, if this species ever had a chance of reestablishing the civilization, this was it. Which is not to say, you know, our heroes did a very bad thing or anything like that. Like, clearly in the way this uh, plays out, they are not have all that much choice. But it's it's just, you know, the the image of, oh, we found a planet. We we found a piece of land that has something really cool. And miraculously, everybody that laid claim to it was some sort of criminal. I feel like that is a story that historically plays out a bunch of times. And in retrospect, we feel sometimes, you know, that label was was thrown around a bit quickly. And I mean, also the um, 
their end technically. I mean, Drawl is just saying, yeah, you can't come in here. I mean, if you, if you think about this, they, they're, is, there's no message from, from the old keeper, old heart, whatever. Mm. Um, and then there suddenly is a Mimbari in the position and saying, no, you can't get in here. Um, and yeah, then just crushing everyone. I mean, okay, he is obviously taking over the direction he got from the old guy. But yeah, how does this feel for for the... What, what are they called in, uh, anyway? I think there was there was a name. They do have a name, which is also something like Tar something something, but I actually didn't okay. note it down. It didn't feel that important because yeah, they're gone now. Yeah, well, at least these these species. How would they feel? I mean, there's suddenly someone else sitting in the chair and telling the uh, of another species, obviously um, not letting them on technically their planet, their home. How would this feel? I mean, it's it's like if suddenly you go home and someone else is opening your door and saying, no, you can't live here. I mean, the question is also, let's assume they were actually outcasts. What did that look like? Because if you're telling me somebody started building this giant machine inside of their home planet, like some of their people decide to build this machine and then they made the proposal so um. Uh, our machine is really cool, so what we're going to do is rig the entire planet with nukes so that it blows itself up if somebody tries to get them. And then uh, opposition to this form that said, hey, maybe let's not do that, and they get cast out as rebels. I can kind of see what they are coming from. Like, yeah, the machine is really cool, but it's not hard to imagine a scenario where the builders of this machine weren't necessarily the good guys for the civilization. And just kind of decided, oh yeah, we are all going to sacrifice ourselves to the machine now. And the people that said we don't want to do that were just kind of sent off into space to just be refugees now forever. We will have to get back to that at some point. Sure. Um, Whoa, the list is getting longer and longer and longer. Yes, but also it will get easy to get back to these points, I promise. Um, yes. What I constantly thought when the Hyperion showed up and when these other uh, uh, natives of that planet showed up was that I felt like here we have this mixing of we find something mythologically uh, magical down on that planet but all of the other real politics stuff is also still happening and here was a situation where you had these three parties basically you had Sinclair from Babylon 5 you had the Hyperion you had these people who wanted to go back onto that planet and um, realistically, it was not possible in that short time frame that you had to prevent disaster um, to have a satisfying solution that was really just like real politics and just uh, solutions that kind of you kind of build step by step to avoid real disaster that leave you sleepless sometimes at night. I think that's what we've seen here. Very much so. And once again, building this bridge between the mythical side of the universe and the much more practical side which is really cool to see okay but this all has to go where do we start again i mean the question is what is left in terms of of big things we can definitely talk about um the resolution to it all because thankfully the hyperion doesn't uh, gets to claim everything for earth 
instead we have this sort of arrangement where the Babylon 5 advisory council sort of takes custody over the responsibility with the machine while Dral, in more practical terms, just makes sure that nobody can touch it. Which is, in my opinion, very interesting because we've talked about how much the Babylon 5 Council is struggling to establish itself as a legitimate institution, and now they have a much more clearly defined task now and a much more clearly defined territory that they are responsible for now. And this, I think, could be very interesting in the future, just to see that now we have set a precedent that they can actually deal with a big crisis like this effectively. And of course, through the um, yeah job addition they get now here, um, it's more like a legitimation of their um, existence, yeah. of their tasks and everything. Um, so kind of also feels like it get more power, more authority. And I think this is something that has a lot of breadth in its consequence because it doesn't only mean that the institution of the council gets more power, it also means that everybody that is sent there as part of the council, all these little ambassadors for the species who might have been sent there as sort of a backwater post, who might have been sent there because nobody cares, they now have a lot more sway because suddenly they are responsible for something that their actual government is much more interested in, which could be really cool for Babylon 5 to do, to say, here are all the people gathered that I have an actual stake in resolving issues diplomatically. And even if the requisite governments don't really believe in that, if we can just give them more sway in their governments, that will push things slowly in a direction that is beneficial to us. So this might be a very important first step here. And maybe a rather practical thing, but since this um, machine probably is really powerful uh, resource to have, it is or it would be smart for each government to put a bit more money in Babylon 5 to make sure the institution stays in... Um, yeah, in working state. Yeah. Because if this breaks apart, there will be war about this planet, this machine, this resource. Um, and therefore, technically, you could think that it's in um, the case of, of Earth Alliance uh, or Earth Dome, uh, that it's more prone to accept Babylon 5 and, um, yeah, their, their existence, their money uh, the, they need. Just because of this, because if Earth Alliance loses Babylon 5 or the, their, their footing in Babylon 5, they lose their yeah power over this machine. I mean, this is of course something that gets argued over a lot, but there is certainly a point to be made about the real-life United Nations relying a lot on the fact that nuclear weapons are a thing, because you have this system of mutually assured destruction that just forces everybody to a table in a way that wasn't really the case before. And how much that is a good thing can be debated, but it definitely feels like the League of Non-Aligned Worlds and the Babylon 5 Council are kind of in, in search of something like this, right? Like something that makes everybody forcibly more invested in actually talking to each other, that makes it less viable for conventional wars to be fought among these species. And 
having exactly this, this like massive potential super weapon in terms of this planet that nobody knows exactly how powerful that is. It's just everybody is very sure that it is worthwhile to fight over. That creates exactly this sort of element where it can be held over everybody's head and every time somebody threatens to pull out of the Babylon 5 Accord, they, they can tell them, well, now you lose your stake in this very important thing and now you risk a massive war where you suddenly don't know anymore if you can win it because if somebody else controls this planet, that might be it. So this this is a really, really big thing. And I think uh, that might also be a pretty good point to, to leave this discussion off. Unless there's any other big point that we want to talk about, I think, yeah, our first two-part adventure leaves on what now in retrospect feels actually like a much more important milestone than I thought it would be. All I have left are tiny bits uh, I liked or, or um, kind of, um, yeah, stuck with me. But maybe um, to go back to the end of the 18th episode, which made me this really um, reaction, um, because I had a real problem with um, the situation where the old keeper is now in real person there. Uh, rambling help me or all your people will die and this was like oh yeah it's is, is it monday again do we have another apocalypse um standing um at our door um step because yeah this is i i know this kind of um, matches in this this episode but this feels this is such a cliche especially the wording and everything yeah. Again, I, I don't know how this felt in the 90s, but now it's just, oh, please don't, not again. What I was asking myself at this point was, what does he actually mean? Does he mean that everyone on the space station dies? Or does he mean that if something goes wrong because of the interest and the resource and whatever that will cause such a big war that everyone is really going to die in this war? What was he talking about? Maybe we will never know. I think I will confidently say even in the 90s this feels like somebody slept for 300 years in the heart of the machine and thought this is a fresh and new thing to say and even then it was kind of <laughs> yeah not not the newest thing possible. If we are talking about small tidbits one of my favorites is Londo cheering up uh, Garibaldi giving his little speech because that was it feels very much to me like Londo is a guy who is really really bad at sort of dealing with other people's emotions. He's usually very much involved with his own. He's just trying his best to cheer him up. And it's just this really odd story that is kind of leading nowhere, but in a weird way, it shows you he really cares and, and tries to, to make things better. Yeah, I mean, at first you think like, yeah, saying it can't be that bad and coming up with such a story is just such a lack of empathy. But then you realize, but it really makes him smile. So it kind of works. It works and it's like, it's the most relatable thing that Londo can imagine in the life of anybody else. So it it it, it does feel it, it does feel like very appropriate to. It feels like it's a very centauri way of looking at things. Like it feels like this is somebody from a completely different culture using that context to deal with Garibaldi's emotions, and that's kind of cool. Though I have to admit, I can totally understand or. or feel Gary Baldi's reaction of if you kiss me, I <laughs> bro. 
be too. I th I think that this would also some be something that would came out of my mouth in this moment, but I would would also be humored. I think it's uh, kind of the same way. You don't know how far Londo will go. Yes, yes, you can totally see him doing this. Well, with a few more drinks, maybe he would have done that. <laughs> that's that's you know that's a few more seasons in, we will see exactly that. Londo just needs to work up to that. Um. Well, the moment since we're at the moment with nice things, um, what really got also to me was when uh, Sinclair and Garibaldi are talking shortly about the evacuation and that not everyone can be saved and everything. Mm. When Sinclair says, "Make sure Ivanova is on the last ship out of here," that was where I was sitting here and was, "Oh gosh, this is this is so so deep." Yeah, I mean. What kind of connection do you have to have w with a person uh, to, yeah, to, to make sure that they survive if you're through at the same time you will die if this happens? And especially in this case, because it also tells you so much about how much Sinclair recognizes that Ivanova will never actually like want to allow this. And I think even Garibaldi knows this in this world where I will probably have to beat her over the head with a baseball bat to make this happen. But somehow I will gather my entire security team to get her out of here somehow. But also I found it kind of terrifying that we cannot evacuate the whole space station in time. I feel like with all of the, I mean, maybe that's just, but with um, all of that big technology that we have, building this station and just realizing we could not get everyone out is doesn't feel so good. No, it doesn't. It's a titanic reprise. It is a little bit, although I feel here it is with a little bit less overconfidence. Like, I don't feel anybody sitting and seeing like, oh, Babylon 5 can't possibly sink. This is why we don't <laughs> need these lifeboats. It's much more, we just can't put them anywhere. Like, there's, we don't have budget for this. We don't have and to be fair, it's not like the planet exploding is like a realistic scenario that somebody should have anticipated. No, but in general. But I mean, then again, when you think of like big skyscrapers these days, we also still don't know how to evacuate them if the exit is blocked. I think we once looked that up. It's still more difficult than you think. If I mean, like every, every, smashing the window and getting people on a helicopter doesn't work. Every time there's like a major... Uh, fire in an apartment complex and such, you hear these stories about, yeah, the, the safety precautions were never really thought out that well because it's, and yeah, it just highlights Babylon 5 is an incredible, like, logistical challenge for everybody involved. So it's, it's really quite unprecedented how to deal with something like this. Um... So this was what you wanted to say about the nice things, how not everybody can, like how many <laughs> people will die if the station explodes. Good one. No, no. Um, what I, what I, it's it's la the last thing, last thing for me to add. Um, when there's this um refuel animation, mm -hmm. which is well, I, I had to have to say when I saw this, it was not. I I didn't feel feel well to to me because it was so bright and I I think that's one of the not so well done animations as far as I can um, judge that. But I found it rather interesting uh, because there was they were talking about um, a hose being uh, connected to a ship, meaning there has to be some sort of being it a liquefied or, or a gas um, form of, of fuel for the ships. 
Um, so no arc reactor there. No, it's, um, it's it, much it, more primitive than that, right? Yeah, it was it was interesting kind of to to see. Though I'm rather interested now to ask to get an answer to the question: What exactly are they using for transportation? It's an interesting thing, and this is one of the things I believe Babylon Five isn't the best at portraying, but, um, you know, just how much maneuvering, how much flying around do ships actually do between the jump gates, the station and where they're actually going, right? Like how much maneuvering is involved there. Um, but it definitely fits in with this idea that, yeah, these are very physical things. And if you're talking about animations a bit, um, one thing that I absolutely love about the space battles in, in this setting is that you don't get giant bubble energy shields or things like that it's all very physical it's like shots being fired being intercepted and stuff which makes for great tv of course because oh there's shiny things happening that's cool um but it also gives you this idea that it's a physical place that needs to be repaired and every shot that lands is you know it's it's not like a setting where you can hit by a salvo or phasers and then just kind of shrug it off and reroute some energy and fix it no People will have to get into spacesuits and go out there and fix it. And we've seen how much the dock workers have to do on a normal day. So just imagine this times 100 when it comes to damage control. And yeah, when we are talking about stuff like evacuating the station and such, that raises the stakes. I'm evacuating my voice right now, I know. What was what was the the term that was always used in 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 Star Trek if something wasn't working? Um, reroute some energy. It's always yeah. rerouting. <laughs> Pull all yeah. energy from life support and put them into the thrusters, and it's just like yeah. <clears throat> oh, my light bulb is broken. Is broken. Just hook up a car battery to it. That's gonna make it better. Yeah, because more energy is certainly solving all problems. Well, I mean, it's 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 kind of the thing where in in Star Trek you can get away with it because it's this magical technology where energy can be turned into all kinds of materials and replicated and stuff. So you can kind of get away with this. And here we just get constantly reminded, yeah, but here if something breaks, you have to order it probably from Mars, which is currently in a civil war. So good luck. You're just not gonna fix it, and that just creates a whole different level of tension also because it makes dependencies also that much greater. Like the reason we see trade happening all the time around the station is because the station isn't sustainable on its own. It needs to be constantly supported and refueled and uh, restocked and stuff like that, which of course then also makes all the diplomacy parts that much more interesting because it tells you if all the species in the galaxy would pool their resources together, they would probably be able to achieve much more things than when they don't. And especially through this trading and everything. I mean, we, we see this now when, when um, something is more effective being produced at place X, then you stop producing it in, in another place and create there for um, dependence. Absolutely. Which I mean, there's there's a lot of, of things that are bad with this. When you are dependent, you're limited in your actions of doing something um, to each other, but which is also the good thing of it because you think twice before 
usually you think twice before starting a war or anything. Yes, we can discuss how well that worked out recently. Um, no, but that's definitely, I mean, that's the basic thought of globalization, that you have these dependencies and uh, therefore secure the global system um, and then also have to deal with the repercussions if uh, someone doesn't think twice. And, and the positive side of this is also, you know, Babylon 5 wants to promote more economic interaction between the different species. And one of the big arguments for this is because then if somebody, if, if the Naan once again try to occupy Ragesh 3, suddenly you have the option to impose sanctions, to impose blockades and stuff. So you suddenly have a lot more levers that you can use. How effective these then are, I mean, even in real life, we debate this to no end. But it certainly adds another layer of, of also like pressure that you can apply. So here is the water. Do we have anything more to say? I was just searching my brain for any other scene that stood out, but I can't remember. I'm pretty sure we covered everything and looking at the clock we've been recording for just about two hours, that feels very appropriate. Yeah. I mean, I'm already through with my little spice sheets, so um, should I sing while you recover? Uh, no, I'm fine. Okay, then I guess it's tapestry time. It is tapestry time, but because this is a two-parter and we are nearing the end of this season, I figured maybe we want to do a special installment of the tapestry and instead of thinking about all the ways that this episode bundles the big plot points and how much of this might become coming back because i'm pretty sure we can all agree the grid machine is going to come back right like why the hell wouldn't actually be there <clears throat> i'm just gonna take it no, next yeah. week there the whole planet is gone <laughs> it's just now? it just disappeared um no but we have how many episodes left not many. Um, let me actually check. While you check that, I would like to add that the German title of this one was um, the, um, the Attack of the Aliens, Part 1 and 2, which is, yeah, the, the, the Angriff der Außerirdischen. Angriff der Außerirdischen, The Attack of the Aliens, which is like such a good title for a show full of aliens. <laughs> Remember that one Babylon 5 episode where aliens were fighting? <laughs> oh yeah, every episode. It's a terrible title. It's also beautiful because it tells you immediately whoever wrote that title didn't pay attention to the episode at all. Because if of everything happening, the fact that the aliens attack is the least interesting or important part of the story. Yeah. So I think any ter therapy now will want this title on the face. Now, so, <clears throat> for this special installment of the Tapestry, I thought it would be fun to ask the question, we have three episodes left, and the third one is going to be the finale of season one. Given every revelation that you've had so far, and we've learned a lot about Earth, we've now learned about Mars, we've learned about the Membari, the Centauri, and the Nan fighting, we've had all of these things happening, we've learned so much about uh, Sinclair's mystery, the hole in his mind over the course of this season. Do you have any inkling or any idea what one or maybe all of these three remaining episodes might be about? Keep also in mind season one is supposed to be 
the introduction to this universe. So is there like a gaping hole about this universe where you feel like season one has not many chances left. This is stuff that it needs to resolve or open up for me to really learn what this universe is about. No pressure at all. I'm just laying all of this on you. Yeah, I, 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 I'm always the one who's has has to do the work. I don't like this. Oh, gee. Uh, hmm. The the problem is my mind is just running wild with ideas, and there's so many options. Um. I can ask you some leading question if you want me to, uh, to, to maybe narrow things down a little bit. Yeah, maybe you should do this because it feels, it feels like shooting in the dark. Okay, so for example, do you think the whole mystery about Sinclair's hole in his mind is something that is going to be resolved by the end of the season? Or does this feel more like something that will permeate the entire show? Okay, this is quite mean since I ex accidentally saw that the last episode is called uh, Chrysalis, is it? Uh, it is called I Chrysalis, yes. Um, I pronounced it like a flower again, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, so we call the last episode from now on just the flower episode. Um, no, uh, but jokes aside, um, I would think that there is a lot of information or, or a big, some sort of big information, revelation, um, we get there. Though I'm not sure if I like to see this one finished. Okay. So at the end yeah, of the season... The problem is since it's just three episodes left and there's really on one hand there's not that much of information what happened on the other hand it's just one event so i think if you get more information yeah you will just if you if you start pulling this thread you will have to get everything I mean, that doesn't also mean that it would have to resolve all of this, right? Even if we learn everything no, about... Certainly it won't resolve. Maybe it doesn't resolve anything, just gives more questions. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think... At, uh, I, I could have mentioned that at least um, some sort... I, either it's it's the what what it, they were talking about the Membari with with Sinclair or doing with him mm -hmm. uh, gets revealed, or that um, yeah, their their motivation of putting him in the station, something like that. Okay, I I like this as an answer a lot. I will ask you a second question. I promise this is the last one. Do you think? This two-parter, the reveal about the machine, um, maybe Mars uh, getting into conflict, maybe the Hyperion showing up. Do you think this might be set up for the end of season one, that this is where Chekhov's gun will get fired, or is this something for later on in your mind? Um, I think to some degree there, th this is the beginning of, of something bigger. 
mm -hmm. the, the serious stuff is really happening now because, um, yeah, because there's at, the, at this point, a lot of things that have been, um, triggered, um, for a long time now resulted in something. And this kind of feels like the beginning of a storm. Okay. Um, though I can't really say to, to what degree, but it certainly, certainly has to be bigger than what was up until now. Otherwise it would be a bit sad for a, a season finale. Okay. I think these are two very, very good answers. We will uh, definitely talk about them while we are going to get dinner in a little bit. Um, for now, uh, outro time. And I think it's my responsibility to do the outro again. In this case, um, yeah, like we just said, it's only three episodes left. And the next episode that we are going to talk about is going to be Babylon Squared. We are looking very much forward to this. Until then, you can find us, of course, here on YouTube, but also on basically all platforms for podcasts of your choice. We have linked our RSS feed in the description, and you can find us always under uh, at the Third Age Podcast, basically on all the platforms. Of course, our community question is important. Uh, we agreed on two, right? Yes. The first, should I say them? The first one is, do you think that Earth jammed Babylon 5 on purpose? Did they follow a kind of agenda or was it really just an accident with all of the chaos about Mars and everything that was going on so that the channels were just overloaded? We would like to know your opinion on that one. And the second one was, do you think that all of these incidents that happen around the planet that is going to explode, do you think that it, that um the all the arrivals of ships of people, the mass revolt, whatever. Do you think that is a coincidence that they meet here on of these incidents, or is there any other bigger plan, any other explanation? What is your idea on that? Two very great questions. I hope we will get some interesting answers by next time, and yeah, we hope to see you there. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. <laughs>